Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Nikesh Kotesha, Vice President of Informatics at Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. After studying biomedical engineering at Boston University, Kotesha earned a PhD in biomedical informatics from Stanford. So it was around the time when the, a lot of the work around the human genome was starting, or was, was completing, and there was a lot of interest in this field called bioinformatics, which really was, how do you think about statistics and computer science and how do you apply it to biology and medicine? Kotesha builds analytic applications to address problems in healthcare. We're measuring a lot of things. We're starting to get to measure everything deeply. So we're getting all these layers kind of put together. That's like understanding our bits and bytes. Also an adjunct faculty member with Stanford Systems and Computational Immunology program. He says immunology is a key to defeating cancer. The immune system is already trying to work to attack the cancer. What can we do to effectively release those breaks where cancer is holding the immune system in check and be able to attack it? And the other form of that is what was, was something called cell therapy where based on the cancer you might have and what we know, we'll be able to take your blood, be able to retreat the cells in the lab and then be able to put them back in the body and have them attack the cancer for you. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Nikesh, I'm really honored to have you on Cracking the Code as our guest. Thank you for uh, being willing to join our uh, show today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm really humbled uh, to be part of this, uh, this set of interviews, so thank you again. Yeah, it's been a privilege, Nikesh, for me to get to know you over the years, and uh, every time I've come away in our conversations, I've learned something new from you. Beside being a, a great scientist, uh, you're an incredible human being and, and individual, so I'm hoping this podcast will allow you to share your life experiences. And Nikesh, if I may ask you, we start off always with our guests. You know, to take me back a little bit to your childhood, what life was like, you know, what it was like with mom and dad and, and your siblings, and uh, how you started that journey all the way to, to where you are sitting uh, in uh, one of the seats of innovation globally, Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, happy to happy to talk about that. I think, you know, it's just like a lot of other stories you may have, um, especially for people coming to the U.S., uh, there's a lot of serendipity and, and chance involved. And, uh, you know, and nothing happens without, like, having the types of conversations that we have with folks like you and others around um, in terms of the things that that come to fruition. So, you know, when I kind of give you my life story, I was born in Kenya uh, in a town called Kisumu, uh, which is the third largest town in, in Kenya on the shores of Lake Victoria. And to kind of thinking back to that and kind of where I sit now, it's it's a very interesting journey. So I was there till about seventh grade, uh, equivalent of seventh grade here in the U.S., where uh, I ended up moving to Denver, Colorado. And it was a you know it was actually a 12-year process from an immigration perspective to be able to get the visas to come to the U.S. So I really grew up not even thinking about the U.S. or thinking that we were going to go to the U.S. or any of that stuff because. I honestly didn't even know that that had happened at some level. And coming to Colorado was a very interesting experience because I got thrust right into the middle school environment. And in a fairly 
fairly suburban environment in, in Colorado. And so, you know, that's that's what I knew of the U.S. It was the first time I saw snow. Um, it was the first time I had really kind of experienced beyond what I saw in the movies, of course. From Colorado, I went up to Boston, Boston University for college. And in between that was a very interesting choice because I had, you know, I, I measured in bioengineering, which uh, is a pretty active field right now, but even about 10, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, was still still fairly new. And the way I came about to being in bioengineering was I was, you know, I liked biology. I was thinking about engineering. And so my teacher was, well, my biologist said, well, there's something called bioengineering. You should look into it. And then the way I came to Boston University was I found a form in our counselor's office with a scholarship application that, you know, if you get it, you get to go there for tuition paid. So I said, fine, I'll apply. And then from there, I went into an amazing place um, in Boston University, uh, had the ability to learn a lot, grew a lot, met my wife there. And kind of coming out of, it was, it was around the time when the, a lot of the work around the human genome was starting, was, was completing. And there was a lot of interest in this field called bioinformatics, which, which really was, how do you think about statistics and computer science and how do you apply it to biology and medicine? And I was fortunate enough to be in the labs that were thinking about that. I worked initially on some stuff called protein folding. Um, and then from there, I started doing some consulting work with one of the biotechs in the area, which now is part of Pfizer. And then kind of coming out of that, uh, I realized I, I really liked the computation part of it. I was trying to figure out how do I help scale and enable some of the things I was doing there. I ended up in an analytics company called Spotfire, uh, which is now part of TIBCO. Uh, where, you know, they had really started coming up with what's pretty pretty mainstream now between things like Bafire, Tableau, Click, uh, which is essentially visual analytics. And the things that we were trying to do there was we were really thinking about, okay, what is going on, um, especially with a focus on pharmaceutical companies, how do we improve the information they need in the drug discovery space? So we started a lot with something called high-throughput screening, which was the ability to kind of look through you know, you, you know the protein that you want to hit in your body, and you have these libraries of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of chemical compounds, and you're trying to figure out which ones are going to be the ones that will do some kind of effect on that protein. And so how do you show that? What, what can you do there? What do you do with that? Along that same time, we were going through a, a field where instead of looking at things one gene at a time, uh, you could start looking at using something called microarrays, look at 20,000 genes at a time. So how do you how do you kind of go from the fact that you can't even have that in, at that time in that Excel sheet, which I think the Excel sheet at that time had about 64,000 rows of uh, information that you could use to to be able to kind of go past that. And, and I thought about that and thought about all the pieces. We kind of had to build tools and capabilities to really help that. And, you know, and the company went through quite the process. You know, we, when I joined, we were about 60. We grew to about 200, came down to 120, can event 150. And during that time, I I managed to find out that, you know, while I did I did like to code, I really liked being the one that could educate our customers or to help our customers or help others realize what, what can be done with this technology and how it could work not just in one part of the pharmaceutical department, but really across the entire value chain and across other industries. So I ended up working in technical sales, technical marketing, uh, pretty much every department except finance. And then kind of coming out of that, I had decided, okay, I wanted to stay in 
in life sciences, and I really needed to know how to do science. And I could do one of two things if I wanted to stay in life sciences. I could try and go get an MBA, or I could try and go for a PhD. I ended up being really fortunate, got into the biomedical informatics program here at Stanford, and it was the classic, okay, put everything in, you know, put everything in a car and drive across the country and come to school. And then as I got here, it wasn't until I started school that I just realized that what I'd done, which was I'd gone into a room where I had to go have homework again. Um, it's, it took me a little bit of adjustment. And one of the things that ended up being there was, you know, the value of the program that I came into was that it was unique in that while I was coming in with some biology and some computer science, I sat in the same program with physicians and with others who had come in from the, the hospital side. So we were all thinking about information and thinking about how to make the most out of the information, but our use cases might be different. While I might be thinking of something that's going on on the sequence end or on the immunology end, we had a doctor there who was like really trying to figure out, okay, what is the right decision support framework for a patient? And it was really, really valuable to me because it gave me that entire spectrum and understanding what pieces can kind of come together. And, and that, you know, even now has come in very valuable, uh, both in terms of the types of things I learned, um, as well in, in terms of the computer skills, but also just navigating different ecosystems and navigating different incentives, right? What I ended up doing for my PhD work was I ended up in a lab. I, I wanted to go in a lab because I, I thought that would be the best way to learn how to do science. And I told my PI I wanted to do immunology when he asked me why immunology, because I said, well, immunology is uh, present in every disease. And it turned out to be a great lab to, to be in. My PI's name is Gary Nolan. It was a great, he's a great technologist, but I was one of his first computational people. And so it was kind of a, an interesting place to, to work out where he didn't quite know what to do with me. I didn't quite know what to do there. And uh, the end experience turned out to be really fascinating because I ended up having to run my own experiments, do my own lab work, as well as do a lot of work computationally. And again, those pieces have come into very big fruition as I moved forward. My thesis work ended up in two different components. I worked some on a project uh, where we looked at a diagnostic or confirmation of a diagnostic for a rare childhood disease called JMML or juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia. And through some of the technology improvements that were going on in the lab, and some of the work we did, we were able to come up with a way to confirm that disease in two days as opposed to the two weeks it was taking at that time. And then similarly, and this is work done with folks here at UCSF, Kevin Shannon and Minion Law. And then at that same time, I was also working with others in the lab to really think about what can we do with the type of data we were generating? And, you know, we're running into some fairly large infrastructure issues, both with the amount of data we're generating and the types of information that we were able to look at. And this was, uh, you know, just to let you know, the, the main technology at that time is called flow cytometry or mass cytometry. And the idea is that we can take your blood or take certain tissues and be able to get single cell information about it. What that, you know, it, it had become really crucial back in the 80s during the HIV epidemic. And for the longest time, it was still the best way to do CD4 count. We have different ways of assessing HIV status now, but for a while, it was uh, CD4 count was the only way. And it was also the crux of the tool belt you need in immunology. So a lot of immunology is about defining the types of cells that are in your body, T cells, B cells, dendritic cells, and K cells. And, you know, a lot of work in immunology uh, 
at least uh, until the early 2000s, I would say, had, had been around characterizing the different types of cells and what they're doing in your body. And, you know, as we move forward, some of the pieces that we had done in the lab and that had been enabled by others uh, were really showing how you could kind of bring immunology and biochemistry together. A lot of the work that you would do in terms of understanding what genes or proteins were, were activated, uh, you would want to, you'd have to like take all your cells, uh, mix them all together, and then burst them open to see what was going on. And I gave you an aggregate view of what was going on, but what you really wanted was a single cell view because, you know, the theories were such that certain cell populations are going to be what are being attacked. And so how do we identify them and how do we understand which cell with cell populations are being activated versus not when you have a particular disease. So, so the crux of that was we came up, there were new ways to think about this information, the new ways to kind of understand how to put the experiments and the reagents together, but it also had new ways of thinking about how to, the hardware advances um, that were happening. So not only could we measure, you know, at the time in the 80s and 90s, the best thing you could do was measure about eight to 10 of these markers on a cell at one time. And that and basically identifying a cell is effectively feature selection. Like you're using the features of a cell to identify if it's a T cell or a B cell. And if you can only identify eight or 10, uh, your resolution of the types of cells you have are smaller than if you could do more. And especially if you wanted to do both external and internal, having more markers would be really useful. And so hardware advances were happening at the same time. And we now have machines that can let you look at 30 to 50 features at the same time. That again, needed an analytics change. And we started putting some infrastructure together to deal with this work and, and be able to use it for both our results and also for us to be able to, when we publish our results, make it available in a, in a fairly transparent way. Because in order to do the analysis, there's a few different manual steps involved. And oftentimes, if you just see the final results, you don't quite know how you got there. We built something called Cytobank, which was at that time a client-server way of being able to have all your data central and then being building the right annotation layer to make sure you have the right metadata around your raw files and then start thinking about what the analytics layer to go on top of that is. And so as I was finishing up and we we're trying to figure out what to do, we were able to get some funds to say, hey, can we take this and make this? more widely available through one of the instrumentation providers. And that started my journey of entrepreneurship. And, you know, it was, uh, again, a lot of trust and a, a lot of confidence from people in me to be able to say, here's a check and go figure out what to do. And that, you know, I learned a lot of different things. I made a few mistakes, had some successes. Uh, we were able to get the platform out. It's now in use by about 12 of the 15 top biotechs. Uh, we've had a, you know, an impact in terms of the number of people that have used it to advance their science. You know, it's been, I think, the last count I looked at was about a thousand publications that have used the software, and that's certainly way more papers than I would have ever written. That has been really exciting, um, and it was also kind of combining a lot of the work I'd learned before even coming to Stanford, where uh, you know you had to go figure out how to get into an enterprise how to get to the pharmas, how to understand what the sales cycle is going to look like, and, and really kind of get to the right people so that we can move some of the pieces forward. And, of course, you know, we were dealing all the way from people in research to people in the clinic and understanding the different phases and how we had to deliver that was really useful. As I was transitioning out of that role and, and thinking about next steps, I ended up talking to Jeff Bluestone, who's my current boss, uh, who has happened to be starting a new nonprofit institute around a field called cancer immunotherapy. 
And cancer immunotherapy has gotten a lot of buzz in this past few years. Uh, it has been a tremendous success so far in, in the way that it's really revolutionizing how we can think about how to treat cancer and what we can do to, to really help advance some of the treatments. And in a nutshell, the idea is that instead of t- attacking the cancer directly, can we use the immune system to attack cancer? And that notion has been around for the past 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, early work was done in the 90s, but not much happened for a variety of reasons that we can go into later until the early, you know, late 2000, early 2010s, basically. And, you know, two of the biggest blockbusters right now, Truda, is what we call an immunotherapy. And just the idea that, you know, you can effectively, the immune system is already trying to work to attack the cancer. Or what can we do to effectively release those breaks uh, where cancer is holding the immune system in check and, and be able to attack it? And the other form of that is what was, was something called cell therapy, where we can, you know, based on the cancer you might have and what we know, be able to take uh, the blood, your blood, be able to retrain the cells in, you know, in the lab and then be able to put them back in the body uh, and have them attack the cancer for you. Um, and that has also been uh, a very big success right now with a lot of potential. Um, it's called PAR T-cells or PAR T-cell therapy. The vision that was happening with the Parker Institute, which, you know, Parker comes from Sean Parker, who decided that, you know, based on his prior histories with and uh, effects with friends who have gone through cancer and his knowledge of immunology, became convinced that the immune system is going to be the way we're going to be able to attack disease and able to attack cancer. And, you know, he decided from a philanthropy effort to really put a substantial uh, amount of money behind the Institute. So we started with, you know, $250 million. And he was even successful in really getting seven of the top institutions together. So, you know, we work with Stanford, UCLA, UCSF, MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, University of Pennsylvania, and Dana-Farber at Harvard. And not just getting those institutes, but getting the top people in those institutes really trying to come together to be able to attack this problem or to be able to see what can we do to go, you know, from what what, what often happens in academia is you get to a, a really good insight, you get to a really good research finding, you'll publish a paper, and then the valley that exists, so to speak, from going to from there to getting something in the clinic and getting it out to patients is pretty pretty grave and and what can we do to minimize that or at least to to help these pieces to get out there faster and then you know the other part of that ecosystem is not just getting into a clinic but then having the the other side of the ecosystem from industry in place so that they can take it forward right um, because you need all of these parts to really be able to get effective and successful therapies and advances out in a way that scales and stays. As I was looking at next things, I ended up talking to Jeff. He asked me a few questions about how to set things up. I think he liked what I said, and um, all of a sudden I found myself as the VP of informatics for this institution. And so the past three years, what we've really been doing is is setting up a brand new nonprofit from scratch and, and really thinking through how do we best accelerate and amplify a lot of the great work that's happening and, and bring some of these therapies into the clinic faster, uh, which has been super exciting, a whole new world of learning, because I went from needing to know very deeply just one type of translational technology in close cytometry to really, you know, being able to work across 15 of those and not just know how to do things on the molecular end, but then really work with clinical trials and 
uh, make sure we're getting the pieces and the and the right setups to be able to run clinical trials and uh, work with our physicians to get these therapies out. Fascinating uh, journey, Nikesh, and uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, I mean, of course, uh, starting from your early childhood days, uh, you know, you've lived in two of uh, two of the most beautiful uh, parts of the world. You know, the shares of Lake Victoria and Kenya, and of course, uh, Colorado is considered one of the most beautiful states in in this country, in the United States. Obviously, you packed a lot of information and in taking us through that journey. So, I wanted to unpack a few of few of those pieces of information for you. So, we'll we'll roll back a little bit back to the childhood days. Tell me a little bit about mom and dad, and the reason uh, I want want to understand that is all of you who have been great leaders that I've been exposed to in your own right. Uh, you are an amazing thought leader in this whole area of of innovation in the healthcare uh, environment for complicated diseases, and uh, you're thinking through it um, in a very innovative way with your colleagues. Just wanted to understand a little bit about what those pivotal moments were in your childhood or in your, uh, your your middle school days that made you think a little bit about life and how you got thrust into leadership. If you can just share a little bit of that, your background, the family environment. I've kind of been thinking about, you know, when was the first time I was thrust into a leadership position or, or thought about that? I don't know if I can pinpoint any one thing. You know, life growing up uh, was 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 akin to being in a small town. It was always there, there was always a lot of things going on uh, from a community perspective, and and you ended up knowing a lot of different people. You know, my mom started as a teacher in the school I was at, and my dad had been a chemical engineer, and then he had you know his own businesses. As I was growing up, I was always kind of exposed to a lot of different parts. It's kind of funny, like the the community there was very open in some ways, you know, in terms of there were lots of different things going on. And I ended up being in a school that was, to me, very exciting. It was a, it was a private school called Aga Khan Primary School. And I was able to get relationships in terms of you know, culture and religion in, in a couple different ways, right? So obviously being in Kenya, you know, I was learning Swahili. I was working with everyone. I had a lot of friends who were both African-American, you know, and Christian and Muslims and all of the above. So so it was a very open way for me to learn about uh, spirituality and religion and the different aspects. And, and a lot of it kind of came into community. You know, when I was in school, I had to take Christian religion. I would hang out with my friends. Aga Khan, as, as you may know, is, is a Muslim school. So I would be hanging out with them afterwards and, and learning about the Quran and what's going on. And I was also taking Hindu religion because we went to temple. And so all of those views and points always came in. And it was pretty, you know, since then you can kind of see what the themes were and see what the pieces were. And you saw different parts of society, you know, whatever you may think are differences. And, and But there were like very core similarities as you go through that. Education, just like with most Indian families, was a, was a critical component. You know, we had to do a lot of work. There was always things for me to do. One of the other benefits was my mom had stopped teaching, but she would be tutoring kids after school. So whenever I'd come home, there'd be a, a whole 
uh, set of kids uh, there to, to learn from her, you know, I'd benefit from just the interactions that were happening there. You know, just kind of from those those types of activities and interactions, I liked enabling things. I was always happy to help. I was always happy to volunteer, always see wherever I could land a hand. And, and I think that those pieces kind of led me to some of the leadership parts uh, that went in. As I came into Colorado, it was also similar uh, it was a little bit of a shell shock from a culture perspective, as you can imagine, and and just understanding and getting my feet planted and navigating through that whole piece was was really hard. But I had a supportive family. You know, everything was at least for me. I was very lucky, being the youngest of, of three, that I could be a little immature and I could ask for things and they would give it to me because they're like, "You're the spoiled kid, right?" <laughs> What was really good about that was it just kind of gave me a way to just get a sense of the feeling and sense of everyone that was there and, and the parts of just kind of growing up a little. You know, as I went into high school and college, it was a little tough because my parents went through a divorce. And while all of those things were going on, you know, they kept a lot. Uh, they, they, they kept to make sure that I was fine and I had what I needed to do. And, you know, kind of being in Boston uh, it was actually useful from that perspective because uh, I wasn't thinking about things day to day. And Boston had its own uh, sets of things because, you know, very similarly, I, I was thrust into an environment where I, I made a lot of really good friends. But, you know, you, you always kind of have this syndrome, especially when you're surrounded by great people, like, why am I the one here, right? It just kind of getting comfortable in your own shoes took me a little while to kind of do. And And then since then, it's been... A lot of self-learning, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of seeking out uh, mentors like yourself and others who, you know, are willing to spend some time and share and, and tell you uh, about their experiences and what you've learned from them. And again, very fortunate with uh, everyone I've met and everywhere I've been that that's been available and accessible to me and becomes part of the support network that really makes makes it happen. A lot of the challenges I keep having is there isn't a career path I, I can point to, right? So as, as you may imagine, what I'm doing now versus what I would have thought when I was a child would be very different. So how do you kind of make sure you're navigating or understand that? And it, it just takes a lot of work kind of being interdisciplinary and uh, making sure you, you're you talking to a lot of people and, and gleaning the right insights um, as you go through it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it looks like, you know, you know I was just thinking back, because uh, of course, uh, myself, my family, we moved around the world, and and uh, you know, moving kids in that uh, eight, tender age of between seventh and ninth grade or tenth grade is a challenge, right? Because you're trying to build your own uh, friendship ecosystem and all of that, and that gets displaced with coming to a completely new country. It looks like you are very reflective and making. Uh, making the most of that opportunity on a positive side instead of focusing on the negative and of course your journey again going uh, going into boston did the same thing for you when did you really uh, you know you've had an amazing career and when did you really come into this thinking that you want to spend some time in the world of innovation and and learn more the little i know about you you've got an incredibly curious mind and and you're always uh, looking to to learn the next thing around the corner. So, when did that really start forming in your uh, mind and your thought processes? You know, I, I can probably point to times in in high school as well. But but I'd say really 
it really crystallized when I started working when I was an undergrad and I started doing my work with the biotech and the and the company I went to called Spotfire. Like the the constant theme to your point is, I am curious uh, in nature and I like to learn about new things. Um, but in addition to learning about new things, you know, I've always had a passion for being able to teach or being able to have others learn, you know, about what I just learned or at least uh, explain it. You know, and I've done that in a variety of different ways. I, you know, through undergrad, I was a teaching assistant for a computer science class that every engineer had to take. Um, I still have an adjunct position at Stanford right now uh, doing something very similar, trying to teach or bring people together that can tell them about new trends or new pieces that are happening. And so to me, you know, the thing I kept seeing in myself was, you know, I'm not going to be the one that necessarily is going to be the deepest person that knows a particular type of technology or a particular type of biology or, you know, or even a type of medicine. What what I was really always excited about and, and useful at was enabling or being able to take something that was was really uh, initially like just emerging and understanding what it needed to happen to apply it and being able to talk about it and get people educated and going. And so it was always really interesting to me, you know, so if I hadn't gone down the road, I would have, and I would have thought what what position would have made sense for me. It's probably like a product manager-like position, right, which would be how do you kind of work across a variety of different uh, groups of people and distill what's needed and make sure it gets delivered or implemented um, in the right way. Those types of, you know, the, the meandering, and, and part of it is, you know, again, coming out of an undergrad as a biomedical engineer, especially at that time, you don't really have a defined career path, right? Mm. You had a little bit, like, we could have gone to a Boston Scientific or, or similar if you wanted to build instruments. You know, and we had a lot of people that would go into MathWorks, which is a company that makes MATLAB. But besides that, you really didn't have too much. And, and so it was a lot of, like, you had to define it yourself or you had to go and talk to people and understand what was needed and then be able to to create that path, right? Or, um, you know, even within when you come to informatics, I remember my first few days in graduate school and I would be talking to people that are going to faculty positions. They would be like, okay, this is hard because they don't know what department to put me in, right? Um, and as you know from institutions in academia, the department institution is how you get your funds. And so you'd have to have an education process of just even letting them understand how to set your position up so that you are getting set up correctly for success. It's a lot easier now, um, for sure. But uh, I've always kind of been in that area. And so that and that has uh, energized me. And so I've, I've kind of, uh, I don't know, because either because of that or, or something else, I, I've kind of keep finding myself in those places and, and, and being excited by that. No, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to hear you uh, share your life uh life story uh, negation. Uh, we'll get to the technology piece in a minute because uh, clearly, you know, the world of uh, data analytics, uh, big data, uh, it looks like you, you've been at the, the innovation front and, and the early days of it and walked through uh, that evolution. It's fascinating to hear that. You, you spend quite a bit of your time now, uh, clearly, spending time with younger leaders, if you will, or up-and-coming leaders. Uh, what would you say some of the things that you observe from them, you know, what I would call the, the millennials or Gen Zs or 
the ones that you know are going to uh, make a huge difference in this world. And of course, you've you've got access to the best of the best of them at Stanford. What what are you uh, able to learn from them that you think? Oh, I want to incorporate that that style or that learning, you know, if you will, in my own approach to life. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I, as so, so there's two parts to that question, I think, that are interesting to tease out. So so one, I think I think if you look at what others have done, what you've done, what others need to do, the, the principles and the pieces are, are you know, the, the themes are very similar, right? Um, when you talk about leadership and uh, communication and transparency and vision, um, I think what we see with the, you know, the millennials and the younger generations is, there's a facility of doing that with, you know, channels, you know, social media, et cetera, that didn't exist before, right? And I think that seems that always is the case. But kind of growing up with that facility in place makes it much easier to know how to use that in an impactful way. Uh, you know, and, and just like with anything else, you can use it in a non-impactful way or a negative way. But having been facile with it and having growing up with it, uh, makes it much easier, right, for knowing how to do that correctly or knowing knowing what the best way to do that is or having tried and done different things. And, you know, and, and that's that I think is, is is the biggest thing that I would want to be able to do. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the best person. Uh, I don't tweet all the time or I don't you know, I don't engage everything all the all the same ways. So, you know, similarly, it's the first time I'm doing a podcast. So <laughs> these types of things that, that, you know, we know can have good impacts and can can really let you get to a bigger following and make a bigger impact. Uh, it's, a, it's a great thing to learn from them and to learn how to do it well or what to look for. Yeah, thank you. You know, because it's, it's clear that there's, uh, we all learn from each other and uh, young or old, and you know, uh, clearly you've you've had that privilege all the way through your life journey. Coming back to the world of technology, uh, clearly analytics, and and you've got the entrepreneurial uh, DNA in you for having, uh, you know, spent quite a bit of time in in, in the founding role at uh, at, at Cyberbank. Where do you see a lot of that application? You're spending a lot of time. Now, uh, you know, looking at this uh, this whole area of cancer immunotherapy, do you see this world of, of data analytics playing a very, a very important role? I mean, we'd love to get your thoughts on it. For sure. So I think, I think, you know, data analytics and, you know, all the AI and whatever other buzzwords you want to run um, are, are going to play a, a, a crucial role um, in this field. I think the, the thing that is always hard to tease out is, you know, we're we're kind of at the beginning of of the of what's happening in this field, right? So, what where we are right now, um, and, and to me it doesn't seem like a beginning, but it, it really is if you if you kind of take a look back. Where we are is 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 we're still kind of mapping out the various different levels of information or modalities that are available to be able to really understand a person, right? So kind of think a bit from the clinical representation or what your body's doing to what your organs are doing to what your cell types are doing to what your proteins are doing to what your genes are doing to what your DNA is doing. All of that information, you know, at some level is, you know, we're measuring a lot of things. We're starting to get to measure everything deeply. 
So we're getting all these layers kind of put together. That's like, like I call it like understanding our bits and bytes. So we're still in this process of measuring everything. As, as that gets in place, right, what we're going to need is we're going to need a way to kind of figure out what is the appropriate level, level of resolution for the problem at hand, right? So, for example, if you go to a physician and you have a call, cold, should he care about, he or she care about the sequence information of your, uh, that's, that's in, the, in your medical record, right? Mm-hmm. And how do we do that, right? That's going to be the next piece, you know, over these, the, over these next decade. That I think is going to be the 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 thing that has to come t- together, right? Mm-hmm. And the, and the tools for doing that we're already seeing happening from a tech perspective, right? If I take if I make a distinction between tech and health tech for a second, right? Think about uh, all the stuff we did with decision support back in the 80s and 90s. Bring in machine learning and distributed computing from these past two decades, and now add the deep information about a person, right? Putting that all together is how you're going to kind of get to that eventual place where you know what the right context is for a physician or a nurse or even a patient to know uh, how best to take advantage of that information, right? So it's uh, that journey, I think, is, uh, is still in the beginning, but uh, really exciting to see where it could go. This, again, this whole world is just, uh, you know, so much to learn from, and every time I interact with you, I... I learn a little more, but um, where do you think uh, AI is going to play in the world of healthcare, uh, especially in what you're doing? Do you have a view on that? It's about context, right? And I think how you can bring context into place is going to be really important. It's not just in health, but but really in, in a lot of different things you, you can see, right? So the information flow anywhere else is amazing, right? Right now, it doesn't you know, uh, like my 10-year-old my is going to grow up never knowing life without an iPhone or an iPad or a smartphone, right? My six-year-old is soon going to forget life be- before Google or Alexa. You're going to have all of this information coming at you. You need to know how to bring it in in the right way and how to internalize or act upon it. And, and that's effectively what our immune system also is doing. Everything and all the pieces and components are always there. Um, it's going to respond in different ways and in the different states. And so what are the right activation states that makes it listen or make someone listen to what's going on and, and, and bring that in into the right place, right? And so those parts are where, you know, as you get this layer of information built and as you start understanding the different nuances at these various levels, that context is going to come in and, and AI is going to play a role in how to bring that context. Right now, it's our, it's in the heads of our physicians. It's in the heads of the people we go see. Uh, it's in the heads because we read all these papers. We've got to kind of figure out how to, how to enhance that and bring, bring some of these pieces together. Do you think it'll be in the next decade or so that this is all going to evolve or a lot sooner? You have a view on that? So there's an optimistic view and then a practical view. So, so optimistically, yes, I think, you know, we're already seeing some of the pieces right now. Like I said, you know, from a, from a tech perspective, a lot of the pieces are there, and and there's a, a lot of low-hanging fruit that, if applied correctly, can can play a lot of benefit even today. You know, and the world of tech just moves faster than than healthcare and health tech, and so that's to me is is super exciting. If you kind of think about okay, how do you then take this up to scale from a health system and a health tech standpoint, that's where the practical piece of it is is really hard. A lot of the things that I've said, a lot of the pieces that I'm, I'm talking about. You know, if you listen to anyone in healthcare, it's, there's nothing new there. People have been saying that for the longest time. But what I've 
really not figured out, and you know, it's a broader question than this podcast is, is how do we move things in the healthcare system much to, to kind of give you perspective. In 2008, there's probably about 10 or 12% of the hospitals actually had electronic health records. We're at about 95% now, right? And it took the stimulus bill to do that. When I'm sitting here in our group, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic because, you know, at one, one level, I'm talking with my group about, you know, and we're working on the next deep learning AI type approaches to be able to understand dynamics of the immune system. Um, and then I have to go talk to a clinician who I just said, like I said, just got his, uh, you know, uh, EHR and is just recently uh, understanding that you can get information coming up, right? And so it's a, that spectrum of getting these pieces out in a, in a scalable way is going to take time. I think we're seeing some definitely acceleration now that the, now that most everything is electronic. But, you know, some of the other pieces around regulation and uh, getting the incentives aligned are, are still, are still things that, that need to be worked out. Um, you know, the, the other part of it is if you, if you take a global view, um, you know, technology and these pieces have to play a role because there's a, there's a shortage of specialties, right? So, you know, kind of like if you look at the biggest cancer center in India, it gets about the same volume or more of the patients as the one here, but it has one tenth the number of oncologists. You know, and yes, that will grow and you'll have a pool of oncologists over time to get up there, but you're not going to be able to solve it with just getting more people, right? You're going to have to bring these pieces in, you know, and it's even worse when you think about Africa and some of the other places as well. So, so there's a, there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of activity. I wish I could pinpoint to one thing. Um, but, uh, but I, I stay very optimistic, but I also, uh, every once in a while have to be come, come down to practical uh, when I see some things. What role is uh, the whole innovation around personalization of medicine uh, going to play as we look at the next decade and uh, improving the quality of life and healthcare in general for individuals? It's, it's already playing a big role in, in many ways that you're seeing, right? So the promise of personalized medicine and precision medicine, it's here. We're seeing some of the, we've seen more approvals, you know, even in the last year than we've ever seen before from the FDA. And, you know, a lot of them are, are also places where, you know, your therapies are personalized. They're based on being able to understand some level of response you're going to have to what we call a biomarker, right? Some level of gene or protein expression that based on that, you're going to be able to get a different drug, uh, one or, or, or something else. The, the, again, the, the pieces that are in play right now are much more that, that will take a little bit of working out is, is twofold, right? So one is around, around just what is the right model to do that? Right. And so we've seen a tremendous amount of innovation, I'd say, over the past, I'd say, eight to 10 years in terms of how pharma companies and biotechs think about the drug model. Right. So moving from the idea that you really just need to have that blockbuster drug, the aspirin or whatever, that's going to, you know, it's going to sell thousands or millions to models where you can pair the drug with the right diagnostic and be able to get to the right 10 or 20,000 people so that that can happen and you can do it faster and learning how do you, you know, how do you set up your ecosystem from an analytics perspective so that you can learn from the trials that are happening and identify the right subset of populations that, that work for that drug. 
The second piece in all of this, as you can imagine, is in doing this, you've not necessarily decreased the cost of that drug. You've probably also increased the cost of that drug. And that's certainly true with some of the drugs we work with in immunotherapy and cell therapy, right? You're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars um, uh, as, as the cost of that drug. How do you work on the pricing end to really make that happen and make that more tangible? Or how can you, how can you show that, you know, the, the value that you're getting uh, in terms of a quality of life uh, is really significant um, are all kind of issues I think that are being grappled with right now. Not quite sure where I heard it, but we're kind of coming to an era now where instead of the FDA being your gatekeeper in terms of getting drugs out, it's really going to be reimbursement and pricing. And so, so those all things are, are uh, exciting times, but I don't know all the resolutions yet. Thank you, uh, Nikesh, it's uh, really sharing those great insights uh, with our audience. Just moving back again, uh, you know, by the way, we, I know we will have some future episodes of, of this podcast with you uh, uh, to, to cover a lot of these topics. And, uh, but moving back a little bit as we start to wind down this, this podcast, I uh, wanted to just ask you a few more questions, Nikesh, and one of those is clearly foundations Foundational morals and values play a lot into who you are as a person and um, how you sort of exhibit leadership. Can you share some of the things that you sort of try to practice in terms of your leadership style and just being who you are as an individual for everybody around you, starting with your family? From a family perspective and uh, friends, uh, you know, my my goal is to always, you know, hoping that I exhibit that I'm approachable, you know, I, I listen and I'll do my best to to help however I can. Um, you know, I think that that's something, again, that I always am happy to do and want to do. And I've been very blessed and grateful to be able to do the things I, I get to do. So anything I can do to help people, I'm, I'm always I'm always there to to do that. You know, in terms of leadership, in terms in especially when you think about a group of people and getting the pieces together, you know, a, a lot of, you know, I've, I've gone through my different stages and done some things right and done some things not right. And, you know, taking the learnings from there really, you know, it comes down to a couple different things, right? So one is kind of really putting the foundations of trust and culture in place first. If trust doesn't exist, it becomes really hard. And, and trust is a function of both character and also competence. You need to be able to do both of those things. And and it's certainly something specific we had to do at the Institute, right, when we kind of got started, because as you can imagine, getting the top people to kind of come together doesn't happen if you can't build the right level of trust. Um, and then certainly within the group, you need that to, to work as well. And then culture, as you know, is something, if you don't get right, you know, in early, it becomes really hard to reverse. And so whatever you can do to kind of get that right is something I think a lot about. And, you know, I think my group, my group gets tired of, uh, of me talking about that these days. And then the other parts, again, is knowing your why is something I've, I've really internalized and taken, you know, why are you here? What are you trying to do? You know, what, what is it that you're going to want to get out of where you are and, and understanding that and then putting some other core values around that. Right. So I, and I just made my group do this exercise the other day about, you know, here's a list of about 50 core values, pick four or five and then make an acronym out of it. The four or five that I came up with were, you know, for me was freedom. I want, I choose to be where I am. Reason, which is, you know, I know why I'm here. 
integrity, doing things with integrity, education, learning, right? The, the value of learning and then success or impact, right? What I'm doing is making an impact. And so my acronym became PRIZE, so. Thank you, uh, Nikesh, again. And, uh, you know, one or two more questions in this sure. whole area as we wind down on this. Uh, how do you define success? That's a good question. So how do I define success? So success is kind of two different ways. So if I'm thinking about it from as a leadership perspective, it is how do I, um, how do you get a group to kind of come together and do something impactful and work well together, right? And so that, you know, that to me is a, is a big thing. In terms of personal success, you know, there are two different ways I think about it. I was able to enable or do something that wouldn't have happened or would have taken a lot longer to happen. And the other part around all of that is I got to happiness as I got to success, right? And, and the happiness definition is something, uh, the, the, what I think of from a quote from Mahatma Gandhi who says, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. And that's really hard to do, but if you can get there, it's a great feeling. Fantastic quote, by the way, yes. Any latest books you want to share with our audience on what you're reading and how that's influencing your thinking? It's kind of all over the map. <laughs> so <laughs> as you can imagine with uh, everything uh, I've told already doesn't surprise you. I try and read as much as I can when I can. The books that were either recommended to me that I, or I found really exciting recently, you know, one was a book called Factfulness that by Hans Rosling. It's a really good book for everyone. I really recommend it. And it, it really talks about what's happening from a global health perspective and how things are not as bad as what people say they are, and the tremendous amount of progress that's happened over the past past few decades. The book is very interesting in that it starts with book starts with a quiz that you know is a multiple choice quiz that about that about twenty questions, and the average that people get right is about four or five, and this is including everyone from people making very big global health policy decisions to people on the street, and so it just kind of changes your thought process of hey. I'm not really thinking about everything the way I should, or I'm really, you know, just focusing on extremes or sensationalization as opposed to really what's happening. That, that was really cool. A couple of good books from the Heath brothers, are, you know, The Power of Moments. So the idea that we organize our memories through strong experiences and feelings and not necessarily linearly. And having that in mind as you think about, you know, how do you, how do you create the right moments for your employees, for your family, for your relatives, uh, for yourself, uh, really becomes important to look at. Made to Stick was another book by them, which is a, an old one now, but really how to think about your ideas and present them in a way that people remember or, or stick with them. The, another one I read recently, again, nothing to do with our field, but really liked was Shoe Dog, uh, which was uh, the book by Phil Knight around Nike. It was just impressive, his tenacity and drive to do what it did in term, terms of getting Nike up. And then one last one I'll give you is the fun end. I've been, through my 10-year-old, being exposed to a lot of really exciting books uh, in terms of the genre of kids' books or, the, or young adult fiction. And I'm really excited about some of the types of books that are coming out right now. So one book she introduced me to was uh, Aru Shah and the End of Time, which is a, a whole new series by an author that's half Indian and half Filipino and taking the Indian mythology stories of the Mahabharata and putting a protagonist of five female sisters, of uh, five sisters, to be the equivalent of the Pandav brothers. It starts with her being in Atlanta and then realizing that she's one of these Pandav sisters and then going through a journey both in the mythological world and in the 
uh, real world. And it is super exciting to see stuff like this because, uh, you know, it's, it's really bringing a lot of different parts into what you would think of as just common literature, right? And if you've read a lot and, and the, you know, in the U.S. school system, you wouldn't necessarily be exposed to this. But because of the work that's going on through Asian authors, both China, India, uh, Europe, and, and, and America, just the number of books are just amazing right now. And top of that, having this idea of the girl power piece is, is awesome because, you know, having two daughters, I'm constantly thinking about making sure that they have the right opportunities and get the right chances in life uh, as they move forward. Thank you uh, for sharing those uh, book reads with our audience. And one final question, Nikesh, and I always try to ask our guests this one is, what do you want people to remember you by? It's a tough one too. Uh, what I would say is that you know, through our interaction, I contributed or added value in some way. Big, small, doesn't really matter. But, you know, having an interaction with me, you got some value or I contributed something that, that made uh, that made a difference. Mm. That's really important in, in, in terms of giving back, isn't it? So for all of us, yes. I really appreciate you joining us on this show and thank you for sharing your, your life story lessons you've learned and I look forward to uh, having you back on the show again in the near future. Thank you, Nikesh. Thanks a lot, Sudhir. Sudhir, Nikesh is not a medical doctor, yet his work is crucial to understanding how our organs, cells, protein, and DNA work within our bodies. The analytical applications he's building with interdisciplinary teams that include medical doctors is crucial in the very important area of finding therapies to stop cancer. We hear about big data and its role in solving our problems. He is working using big data in a very personal way. We've met entrepreneurs who have been key to giving us our broadband internet connectivity, the mobile communications that we can't imagine living without. But as an entrepreneur and vice president for informatics at Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, Kotesha is helping not with our cell phones, but with the cells that give us life in our bodies, something we certainly can't live without. And as an adjunct faculty member at Stanford's Systems and Computational Immunology program, Kotesha is involved in training the next generation of scientists who will use these methods and analytics to address problems well into the future. And I found it interesting. When you asked about books that he's reading, he also talked about his 10-year-old daughter's books. We should never be too old or too proud to learn from them. And that's episode 17 of Cracking the Code. Can't wait to hear 18.